Hello and welcome to Thermonuclear Takes. Regular listeners will know already, but in case you're new, these are shows I like to do once in a while which depart a bit from our regular format. Instead of a normal episode, we get a grab bag where we catch up a bit on the news, especially any items in the news that are relevant to previous episodes. Maybe I'll talk about what's going on with the podcast and some other odds and ends that don't really fit in anywhere else. So it's a bit more freewheeling, I can respond to some listener questions sometimes, catch up with some running themes, all that sort of thing, and you should expect a much looser and less well-structured show with less in-depth research involved in it, because the idea is simply to give some, well, thermonuclear takes on what's been going on and provide a slightly different kind of episode. In that sense, unlike other episodes which are timeless classics, stuff in these shows may end up being outdated if you're listening to this years down the road, but I hope that you'll still enjoy it nonetheless. Typically what happens with these episodes is that new stories gradually build up over time until eventually there's way too many and I feel like I have to cover them. And there's one tipping point story that really forces me into it and say, okay, we're going to do another thermonuclear takes episode. And this time it was a pretty huge story that was too too good to resist really related to stuff that we've covered before. Listeners to our episodes on the SoftBank Vision Fund will remember that we talked about how many of its investments seemed a little ill-advised to say the least. And indeed, in one episode, we talked at length about how the strange financial engineering surrounding one firm, Greensill Capital, might be the sort of thing that might lead to another financial crisis at some point down the road. This is the same Greensill Capital, of course, whose CEO, Lex Greensill, got an OBE for services to the economy and has David Cameron, former British Prime Minister, on the board of advisors. It's the darling of the fintech world, or or so it was. Now, I was far from the first person to... Think that there was something weird going on with Greensill. Robert Smith and Michael Pooler for the Financial Times have been reporting on this for years now, and I heard about it via the Trash Future podcast, who've taken the mickey pretty relentlessly out of various bad SoftBank investments over the years. So my take here is not really to say, I told you so, but the, the main thing that comes out of this for me is, if a dummy like me, who knows almost nothing about this stuff, was able to notice that something fishy was going on, then actually smart people could see it coming a mile away. And it just makes you wonder what all of the actually smart people who put their money into this business were doing. Indeed, several people I chatted to off the record who investigate this sort of thing basically said that they were all expecting a collapse in this kind of uh, financial engineering, this kind of company and the way this was being run to be arising pretty shortly. So just as a very quick recap, although you should go back and listen to the SoftBank Vision Fund episode if you haven't already, I believe it was titled The Next Financial Crisis, in that episode on Greensill from November last year, we pointed out the way that it operates. And it's a sort of heavily debt-driven financial intermediary, which converts corporate debt into these bonds, which it can then sell on. And then these bonds can indeed be bought up by other companies or other financial institutions like SoftBank to pump up its balance sheet. And, you know, this sort of opaque repackaging of debt and circulation of debt was potentially open to abuses in the future, such as charges of balance sheet manipulation. And we talked about how more broadly, you know, SoftBank's general investments are companies which make a big deal and make a big show of being technology companies um, because they hope to attract the price tag and the investment that more mainstream technology companies can get. And so they really want this label of some sort of tech company. And in this case, it's a fintech company, financial technology. Um, but we talked about how this is you know, a classic SoftBank company to invest in that, that's claiming to be more about technology than perhaps it actually is. And indeed, the fact that it's pretending to be a bank 
basically, um, or fulfilling some of the functions that that banks and other institutions might normally do. Um, This is in line with what SoftBank does, because you have these companies that are sort of posing as tech companies, and they're kind of actually getting around some of the regulations and scrutiny that would apply to the non-tech companies that, that would have done that same role in the past. So, you know, these are startups which are circumventing regulations that would apply to traditional companies in that sector. So Uber is the classic example, of course. That gets around the laws that would apply to a traditional taxi company. And then the fact that it's posing as a technology company, like in the case of Uber, lets it overinflate its valuation because people are used to technology companies uh, that initially lose a lot of money, eventually expanding rapidly and becoming profitable. And it's much easier to hype things when you claim that you have some magical proprietary technology that allows you to do strange financial things that no one else is able to do. Um, behind the curtain, of course, things may be a little bit differently. But of course, avoiding the regulation and scrutiny that might apply to an ordinary bank while undertaking some of the financing activities that a bank might normally do, for me at least, that that is a red flag, because (laughs) these regulations exist for a reason. And generally, when you see a regulation that's in place somewhere, normally it's to prevent something specific that happened in the past. Um, So what I'm here to say about Greensill is that all of the concerns that we raised about it and SoftBank's investment in it and whether it had any real time, it's all been completely vindicated. As I write this, news has been breaking about Greensill for days now. In essence, the upshot is that it's filed for an insolvency. It can't pay its debts anymore. It's in the process of completely collapsing. The whole thing, it seems, was in essence this house of cards and it was built on the insurance that was provided for Greensill's debt and contracts. And the funders have eventually pulled that insurance. They no longer trust the company. They don't want to insure its debts. And so the whole thing has just collapsed in a a matter of days um, from this one decision from one of the financiers that were propping up this business. So that that tells you you a lot about what was going on under the surface here. So I'll get into it a bit. So it all began with the bank Credit Suisse. They suspended $10 billion worth of their supply chain financing funds, which were related to Greensill. Um, It did this noting that it no longer had any confidence that Greensill's assets were really worth what they claimed they were. So these main funders pulling the support away has just precipitated this collapse where everyone has lost trust in this business and essentially taken all of their money out or attempted to, and the business has completely collapsed. So for the full story, I recommend reading Robert Smith's work. He is at BondHack on Twitter. He's done lots of stuff in the Financial Times Uh, Some of it is behind paywalls, but he's also done interviews for TV uh, and and you can find those on his Twitter. He explains these things in much more detail. And um, as in many of these cases, when you're dealing with these uh, high finance types, um, he was harassed extensively for his wonderful reporting on this. Indeed, another SoftBank-backed company was Wirecard. Uh, Those of you who subscribe to the Patreon will know we did a whole bonus episode about the Wirecard fraud. But again, that was a case where investigative journalists from the Financial Times were harassed extensively for doing what they did. So, you know, a lot of credit goes to Robert Smith for sticking with his guns and sticking to it and not giving into the pressure and exposing what had been going on here. But amongst some of the revelations that have come out about Greensill, we found out that, well, Greensill never really had that much of its own technology. It has relied on essentially being able to use its position to funnel money through various other companies. Much of the technology that it does use is software that it rents from third parties and isn't developed by Greensill itself. And what technology Greensill has developed is being sold for pennies on the dollar of its inflated valuation. 
So in the midst of the collapse, there have been talks that another company might buy Greensill uh, and its remaining sort of proprietary technology, the technology that it actually owns, um, at a valuation of maybe $60 million. That's a far cry from the $7 billion valuation it claimed when my episode was released. So it's gone from $7 billion to $60 million. And even that deal, the $60 million deal, is in jeopardy at the moment because essentially they don't know how much of the technology they're trying to buy is actually owned by Greensill or owned by other partners who actually supply this stuff to them. So, you know, to say you're a technology company that's worth billions of dollars and then as soon as all of your um, financial backers leave, you can't sell that technology for tens of millions of dollars even, sort of just shows you how overinflated this thing was. SoftBank invested $1.5 billion in Greensill. $1.5 billion they invested in Greensill. And Greensill is now worth less than $60 million. They can't even sell it for that. So SoftBank is essentially expecting to lose all of that investment. It's being written down to close to zero. And just a few hours ago when I wrote this, news dropped that the German financial regulator... BaFin is now criminally investigating Greensill for suspected balance sheet manipulation, which is exactly what the Financial Times reporters and Trash Future and later me and the listeners to the show suspected might be going on. So this is an evolving story, and we don't know where it all ends up, but, I mean, it, it, it's collapsed, the business is over. Um, so, beyond just saying, I told you so, which is always very satisfying... There are some wider reasons to talk about this. The first of them is that this collapse is going to have real-world consequences. And as those of you who know a little about how the world of high finance works by now, you know, not all of these consequences are going to be visited upon the people who set up this financial engineering to make themselves a killing. Part of the problem here is the line of business that Greensill was in. So you'll remember that they were doing this sort of supply chain financing thing, right? And, well, the idea here is that you can uh, use their financial assets and their financial services to renegotiate the terms on which you might pay uh, bills in your supply chain. So for some of these typical transactions, you imagine you're a business, you have to pay people in your supply chain, you can get Greensill to pay them for you, um, at a different time, and then you pay Greensill or vice versa. So they're sort of plugging the cash flow gaps that businesses might have uh, when the the payments that they need to make to people in their supply chain don't line up with the revenue that they're getting from selling their products, maybe. And that in itself is not a bad thing, necessarily. Um, there, there's, n- there's nothing inherently wrong with having someone who extends you know, short-term credit for that type of situation which allows businesses to remain solvent and not have to put cash aside um, for paying their supply chain when when things don't line up as they would wish. But the problem is that when it's used excessively, this supply chain financing has been implicated in the collapse of earlier companies because you can sort of use it to kind of keep flooding money through your company and not necessarily pay your bills, but kind of get into deeper and deeper debt on your supply chain. Um, And and this has happened in previous cases, uh, like the outsourcing giant Carillion. You sort of get these zombie companies who are uh, driven by a lot of this debt, and they have a lot of debt in their supply chain. 
It keeps their balance sheet looking good, it keeps them solvent and keeps them going, even when they're not actually making money. And so it's kind of propping up companies that might otherwise have problems, basically. And that is part of what has happened here. And now that Greensill itself is collapsing, it's no longer going to be able to finance the ongoing operations of some of these companies. And according to the Financial Times, in an article of 3rd of March titled German Regulator Steps In as Greensill Warns of Threat to 50,000 Jobs, well, so many of these companies have been dependent on Greensill that Greensill is now saying that the collapse of its loan facility could lead to the loss of many of 50,000 jobs if the firms that are relying on its strange financing arrangements will now go bankrupt as a result. Now, another key player here is this guy Sanjeev Gupta. So Greensill was the main lender to Sanjeev Gupta, um, and it seems like they had a bit of a circular financing arrangement. Um, Gupta's companies helped out Greensill a few years ago when it was struggling, and then Greensill has advanced as much as $5 billion to Gupta, which appears to have propped up his company um, when it when it might not have been working so well. So there's sort of there's um, an uncomfortably close arrangement between the Greensill who are lending to a company and the company that they're lending to, basically, uh, that appears to be, um, well, shall we say, allegedly suspicious. And we'll see what happens with all this when it shakes out. But um, but Gupta is now in trouble because this $5 billion that that they have been lent from Greensill, you know, is, is, is questionable. Um, and that company in turn owns most of, well, it, it owns one in six remaining steelworking jobs in the UK are linked to this company. He's been buying up steelworks for many years. So there's about 5,000 steelworking jobs in the UK that depend on this. And potentially this company, the GFG Alliance, um, which owns these steelworking jobs, could possibly be in danger because of these shenanigans that have been going on with Greensill and its, uh, you know, you, you don't want to you don't want to use words like fraud because they're very very active with their lawyers. Um, so I'm not going to say that. But <laughs> whatever has been revealed to be going on there is bad enough that the company is now completely collapsing. So you can draw your own conclusions, and I'm sure at some point the authorities will. So. It's not clear what will eventually happen and whether these steelworking jobs will be rescued. There have been high-level talks with the UK government to step in and rescue these jobs. But um, either way, you know, the collapse of this Greensill House of Cards is going to hurt a lot of innocent people and it may well lead to the loss of thousands of jobs for people who have never even heard of supply chain financing or, or Lex Greensill or SoftBank or anything like that. You know, people who are working in some of the few manufacturing jobs that are left in this country. Um, and, you know, so, so that's obviously one aspect why this is important to talk about beyond just like, haha, I told you it would collapse, and then five months later it did. Um, more broadly, without wanting to get into too much detail about Greensill, but taking a few steps back here, this is one of the many things that right now that feels like a symptom of a system of production that is far too focused on financial engineering and rewarding that than it is focused on actual engineering. Imagine if all of these billions that had flowed to Greensill from SoftBank had been used to, I don't know, just buy the steelworks <laughs> or, or anything else really, any sort of practical production that had taken place. Because that 1.5 billion SoftBank invested in, in Greensill is gone now. Uh, Greensill, through whatever mad financial engineering they've been up to, 
may have incinerated other jobs um, because they were propping up companies that might have had to operate in a different way otherwise, you know. If this effort and energy and capital had been focused on actual engineering, then we wouldn't have this sort of crash, which is like a sort of miniature financial crash, I guess you could say. Um, It's not a crash in the whole economy and the whole financial sector um, that results in real people losing their jobs, but it is in this one firm. And there are other supply chain financing firms, I think, that will now be uh, subject to a lot more scrutiny um, because of the way that this practice has been uh, abused and sort of used in... Well, I mean, the Germans are investigating them for balance sheet manipulation, so perhaps I can say that that is at least alleged by the German financial regulator. And you look at all this and you think, I'm reminded of Professor Keane, who we interviewed a few episodes ago, saying, what we need is boring bankers and exciting engineers. And I'm sick and tired of seeing these massive schemes collapse and the impunity with which some of these dodgy deals can take place. Greensill now joins Wirecard, which we discussed in that bonus episode, as yet another SoftBank-backed super-duper financial technology company, which has been found guilty of, or credibly accused of, just cooking its books, just just lying about its balance sheet to inflate its valuation. And, you know, this this stuff is terrible. These were both companies that claimed to be technology companies that justified this massive overinflated valuation with the promise that they had developed some brand new fintech. But behind the curtain was just a classic shell game. The purpose of talking about your technology is to justify these inflated valuations and to shield you from the regulations that apply to other financial institutions. We're not a bank, we're a fintech company, so different rules apply. But, you know, it's more of this stuff under the SoftBank umbrella where it's formed a bit of a bubble based on hype and very little substance. And when the bubble bursts, unfortunately, it seems like ordinary people are going to suffer. And we see these unbelievable rewards that accrue to these people like Lex Greensill, you know, the OBE, uh, the the millions of dollars. He was a guy who had his own fleet of private jets. Um, Even other people in the supply chain financing business uh, would say, I fly Ryanair, you know, I don't fly around on these private jets, something's going on here. Um, And, well, we'll see what precisely has been going on, but, you know... We know that what he's been doing has essentially just been shifting money around in ways that adds very little value or benefit to anyone's lives and now may actively be responsible for people losing their jobs, you know, hardworking people. More broadly, you know, as a physicist, we all know that a huge proportion of the bright and mathematically minded people who graduate, I don't know what it was, like one in three, one in five, they go into finance to make a killing because they know that the only way they can really make money with their mathematical degrees, the way the system is set up at the moment, is in the financial sector. And they can make huge amounts of money selling out and doing that. And it's just crazy to me that actually working on projects that improve people's lives in any tangible way, rather than projects that predominantly, mostly, let's face it, allow more money to accumulate for those who already have money, that is actively discouraged and disincentivized by the way the world is run at the moment. Instead, the rewards go to people like Lex Greensill. And seeing the egregious bubbles at the top of the swamp, you know, the nonsense that inflates the values of this stuff, the SoftBank Vision Fund promising that it will accelerate the technological future, and then the SoftBank Vision Fund getting people all excited that it's going to accelerate this technological future and the singularity, and then just 
investing in Wirecard and Greensill, who turn out to be running some sort of scam, it just re-emphasises to me that the system is really broken. And when I say that these bubbles are egregious, you know, this sort of thing shouldn't happen. I'm just a student, I'm an amateur podcaster, you know, I don't even study finance, I, I read about it for fun. Um, I'm not that smart. It should not be possible for me to read a few articles over a weekend or two, and then be able to predict the collapse of a business that was valued at $7 billion. People in the financial sector are clearly not doing their due diligence when they're investing in this stuff, and it makes you wonder what their motivations are. So, you know, yeah, I'll say it. It increasingly feels like we live in a Ponzi age. Ponzi schemes are good to study because of the dynamics that they have. When you see this dynamic in the Ponzi scheme, you start noticing it in lots of different places. So just briefly for those that aren't aware, at the core of any Ponzi scheme is essentially a scheme that sounds too good to be true, and relies almost entirely on faith to operate. You offer people an investment opportunity that sounds too good to be true, say consistently high returns of so many percentage points a year if they invest with you. Instead of actually investing that money in anything, or spending it on anything, you essentially pay people their returns with the income that comes from new subscribers to your scheme, or perhaps by taking on debts which are based on your picture of financial health. The point of this is that the whole thing can only work if you keep selling subscriptions to your scheme. You know, you have to continue to grow endlessly. Uh, you have to continue to grow the amount of debt that you're in, perhaps. You have to continue to grow the difference between the, the actual assets you have and the sort of fictional assets you have, uh, and the bubble gets inflated and inflated. And everything becomes about appearances and emotions, because there's no underlying substance at all. There's simply an illusion that you build up of success and profit over time. And over time, to persuade people to keep putting their money in, the delusion tends to have to become grander and grander. It has to grow constantly as you grow further and further away from actual reality. It has to become more and more extensive as your real losses get worse and worse and worse because, of course, you're not actually making any money. Um, you're just giving people, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul, as they would say. Um, and it has to become more and more unrealistic and overinflated before that bubble finally does burst. And the amazing thing about these schemes is just how long they can be sustained for and how sophisticated the illusion can be. A lot of this simply comes from the, what I guess I'd call the mutual dynamic of no one really wanting to question a good thing. On the side of the schemers, perhaps they never intended for their fraud and deception to get quite this far out of hand. But before long, you have to grow wilder and more desperate in your deception just to keep it going for a few days, a few weeks, a few months longer, perhaps hoping that you'll be able to make it out alive with some ready money before the time comes to pay the piper. But before then, you can sustain it for an incredibly long time. And the same incentive structure applies to the people who invest in this stuff as well. Indeed, you know, later on in this series of thermonuclear takes episodes, we'll talk about some Ponzi-type schemes where people know what they're doing. People aren't actually deluded um, by the promise that there is some secret source that is allowing you to make these special returns. People actually know that they're in a Ponzi bubble, but they're just hoping that they'll be able to get out of it quicker um, than, than they can get into it. You know, they're hoping that they haven't bought in before it hits the peak, 
that they can sell on to a greater fool. And that's a really that's a really fun dynamic where the people who are buying into the Ponzi scheme know it's a Ponzi scheme, but are just hoping that they can find other people who who will buy into it. Maybe the people they sell to know that it's a Ponzi scheme. Maybe everyone knows that it's a Ponzi scheme. I mean, we, we have seen examples of stuff a bit like this happening, where sort of everyone kind of realises that what they're doing is just pumping up the price of an asset or, or keeping it going uh, for as long as possible in the hope that they can just just get out before the whole thing collapses. And everyone kind of knows there's going to be a collapse, but there's still this dynamic can keep going. But regardless of whether people know there's a collapse or not, you know, th- these schemes can sustain themselves for an incredibly long time. Bernie Madoff's scheme is the classic example, that's the biggest one. That may have started in the late 1980s, but it didn't collapse until 2008. By that stage, the scale of the fraud was measurable in the tens of billions of dollars. He had invented tens of billions of dollars and, and kept this scheme going and, and was seen as an incredibly reputable investor and someone that people were really eager to store their money with who could get these consistent returns. And that kept going for decades, and this despite the fact that the first major concerns about his scheme were raised in 2000, the firm was under investigations in the 1990s. So this Ponzi dynamic can really keep going for a long, long time, and that makes it very unpredictable. But (laughs) the longer it goes on for, the worse the crash is when it finally comes. And you know, so much does feel like a Ponzi. Most of the weapons of finance that all too many smart people spend their days devising and developing end up coming into this stage of Ponzi finance before they collapse. They end up being reliant on new chunks of debt or new loads of investors to fill in for the old. Most of the inflated valuations of overhyped companies and ludicrous assets, Bitcoin, which we'll talk about later, is of course the tip of the bubble in my view. These also have these Ponzi dynamics where they're waiting to be sold on to a a greater fool with Everyone gambling, not on the underlying value of what they're buying, but just on how long the game can continue before the music stops. And the shift of all of this money into financial markets and assets, towards financialization and, and numbers on spreadsheets, and away from reality and actual investment and capacity to produce things, or people who can provide services, you know, that all of this is a, is a problem. And... The relentless exploitation of the environment and the natural resources that are available to us, you know, that feels like a Ponzi too. The continued extraction of fossil fuels that emit greenhouse gases as we continue to push the burdens of actually addressing the problem into the future through never-ending schemes of offsets and negative emissions, you know. Listeners on Patreon will be enjoying the long series on negative emissions that we've been working on, and so they can sort of appreciate how our ever-increasing reliance on carbon capture to come along and save us from climate change. This has similar dynamics to a phase of a Ponzi, in the sense that you know we're getting more and more in debt to the future by not slashing our emissions now. The gap between where we need to be and where we are actually grows, and so the promise of the technology has to grow. Many might argue the delusion of the technology has to grow. And it's Ponzi-like in the sense that you wonder whether at some point it'll just overshoot itself and we will have some sort of collapse in our expectations of how rapidly we're going to be able to deal with climate change or or how much these negative emissions will really actually contribute. Solutions that get proposed to problems are bolt-on solutions because you can't address the underlying problem because there's sort of nothing there. 
There's no substance there that you could actually use to address it. No one has the imagination, the confidence, or maybe the ability to remake things from the ground up, because remaking things is seen as impossible. Even as the response to the pandemic does demonstrate now that impossible things can be done when we decide to remake the world in another way. And amidst all of this, we have SoftBank supposedly pursuing these dreams of the technological future that we all have, but actually propping up companies like this instead. And it's these resources in terms of raw money, but people's time and effort, going into this kind of project, when there's so many more valuable projects that we could and should be doing, tackling climate change, alleviating poverty, improving people's quality of life, or, you know, even doing things that are daft and risky, but fantastic and fascinating and interesting and with potential for side benefits, just actually, just actually you know, realistically diverting stuff into actually attempting things, attempting to come up with new technologies and not hype. Because the, the hype sells when, in many cases, the reality doesn't. And it's depressing to see this happen and to reflect on the perverse incentives that arise when money is just sort of preying on itself and everyone's focused on how to use their money to generate more money in ways that typically mean that people don't end up actually getting paid. It's short-circuiting the whole incentive structure. You know, if you're if you're listening to this and you're a sort of right-wing libertarian type or further to the right than me, that's fine. Um, that's your own opinion. But the, the incentive structure that a marketplace is supposed to provide is, you know, you have a marketplace for goods and services and people compete to provide the best goods and services at the lowest price and that is supposed to be how things improve, right? People invest in new ways of doing things, they'll invest in new technologies, new techniques, they'll work out better ways of providing stuff, or they'll create new marketplaces sometimes. But the whole point is that having this market incentive is supposed to provoke you um, and incentivize you into doing things better. But when all, all you have is financial engineering and money that is just being invested speculatively to generate more money and never actually being invested in anything that improves things, you know, even a right-wing libertarian would have to say that you, you've short-circuited the purpose of the market. You know, you're not doing what you think the market is doing. You're just trying to use money to generate more money by hyping other people and engaging in this sort of Ponzi financing. Maybe it's not quite as bad as short-circuiting the meaning of life, but... So, you know, with this Greensill scandal, you just think, let's just see what happens to everyone involved, right? Let's see how many ordinary people lose their jobs from this collapse, and let's see what happens to Lex Greensill and whether he gets to keep his private jets. Somehow I expect when everything shakes out, he'll probably end up with more money than you or I could imagine making in ten lifetimes in spite of everything. So there was another quick recent piece of news related to another one of these companies in the SoftBank portfolio, and this is Uber. So we talked in our Uber episodes both about the company's lack of profitability and the way that it subverted many regulations to give its drivers a raw deal. The gig economy, where work becomes more precarious and you have fewer rights and no such thing as job security, you know, it increasingly feels like it's coming for all of us. If you don't think it is, then... You know, you just have to look around and see that the people who are the disruptors who are going to try and bring it to your industry, if it's not there already. And again, the the USP here is not really 
a new technology in the sense of an app that is a platform that magically allows you to do everything cheaper. Um, the, the USP that's going to let you do things cheaper will be subverting people's rights and paying them less than a minimum wage through various different ways, you know, and that 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 is the USP in a lot of these cases. Of course, it's always sold to us as flexibility um, and providing more choice, and to an extent it does that, but, um, you know, the, the, the sort of... The job contract, traditionally, you have some sort of trade-off, right, between uh, the loyalty that you owe to the company you work for and the security that you get from uh, that and, and, and the pay that they give you, you know. And uh, in, in the gig economy, the sort of contract is, well, it increasingly doesn't exist. And the company's route to profit is by undermining the uh, rights that, that workers have fought for for a long time. But um, the good news here, and we do have good news for once on the show, is that Uber has helped to lobby to pass Proposition 22 in California, which further reduces the rights of all of its drivers there. But it is seeing less accommodating treatment here in the UK, where our Supreme Court has ruled that Uber drivers are in fact employees of Uber, and they're not self-employed. This is a legal battle that's been going on for five years now, uh, more than five years, after a couple of Uber drivers initially sued the company for recognition as employees. And once they're recognised as employees, then they're entitled to the minimum wage for the hours they work and holiday pay for the holidays they take. Now, Uber had previously said that if they were found to be workers, the company would only allow them to bill the hours they were actually driving passengers around, and not time waiting in the car for a new passenger or driving to a new passenger which would obviously allow Uber to cut corners and cut the money going to its drivers. I mean, you know, imagine if you're, say, I don't know, a receptionist, and you're only paid for the time that you're answering the phone, and not when you're waiting for the next call. But that's the sort of thing they want to do, obviously. But a good point of this Supreme Court ruling in in its details is that um, it has said that they are formally working for the company as long as they're on the app and in their car, which is good. And I think, you know, I mean, it, it... it can feel like a bit of a regression, right, where we're just getting to the stage now where people are recognising that a taxi driver is technically working um, for the time that they're driving around in the taxi, right? But that, that, that's, that's, that's where we are with Uber. I think that this is unambiguously good news. I think for far too long, Uber has been able to get away with this undercutting of uh, workers' rights, immiserating its drivers undercutting existing transportation services as well so that the roads become clogged with these cars and that public transport can't happen and, you know, generally making the world worse. The best Uber can say in its defence is that now it might have to increase fares or reduce the number of riders that it allows. But all I can say to that is good, you know. If your job can't pay a living wage and you're flooding the streets with cheap drivers who are all competing with each other, you know, you're undermining public transport, you're burning through fossil fuels, you're an unsustainable business because you're constantly in debt somehow, maybe it's a sign that you're in the wrong line of business, you know. Um, so from a, from a right-wing point of view, you know, this is a company that is unsustainable, that shouldn't be going, and, and from, from a sort of left-wing point of view, this is a company that undermines the rights of workers, so I, 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 I don't feel inclined to defend it in any way. People got around cities fine before Uber, and I'm sure they'll be capable of doing so if they have to pay Uber drivers enough to live on for a change. And if Uber can't have, <laughs> if it can't pay a living wage, you know, if there's too many cheap drivers out there, that that's a that's a distortion. That's not what we should be having. Um, so 
you know, I, I, I can't see how that is a bad thing at all. Um, you know, Uber is sure to try and fight individual legal actions now against many of these drivers who are going to be claiming back pay and holiday entitlement. And one of the things they often do is uh, issue surveys to the drivers to say, OK, well, this is what the drivers think. And uh, they've been accused of surveying them in a misleading way, um, designed to help them argue that they actually don't want the workers' rights that have been fought for. But the case sets a good precedent that some of the many additional gig economy cases that are pending in the UK might be met with courts that are willing to stand up for, you know, people who are working on on the hard end of the gig economy. And I think that can only be a good thing. So in a couple of areas, at least, we are perhaps starting to see signs that some people are realising that the SoftBank companies and the related like pseudo tech bubble, I guess, has some serious problems and regulators of one sort or another are finally starting to take action against Uber and against Greensill. So I'm going to chalk these things up as a good news story. There are plenty of other news stories that I wanted to get to in thermonuclear takes, so we'll be doing that in the next episode, which will be coming out very shortly. And we'll be talking about everyone's favourite stock on the stock market, small finance stuff, GameStop. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finally talk about GameStop. So if you've heard enough about that, and believe me, I, I felt the same way, um, you can skip that one and move on to the next one, uh, where we'll finally be talking about cryptocurrencies. I have the cryptocurrency rant that has been building for many, many years. I'm finally going to unleash it all and face the wrath of those of you who are fans of the cryptocurrency. And then the final thermonuclear takes episode that is coming out in this batch is going to be all about the green recovery, uh, climate change, some of the climate policies here in the UK and how they're going, and some news stories surrounding that. So, you know, we, we like to keep up with how the uh, climate policies are being enacted and, and what's been going on there. And that, and that will be the last one in this thermonucleotech series. So I hope you join me for some of those. And if not, please just wait for the next normal episode where we're not covering the news in a breathless, excited fashion. Uh, thank you very, very much for listening. Remember, you can find the show on the web at physicspodcast.com. There you'll find the contact form, any comments, questions, concerns about the stories that we have, uh, stories that you'd like to see us cover, maybe, send them there. I try and respond to all of the emails, and good stuff makes it into the show. And you can, of course, support the show um, up there. We've got the Patreon, which I've mentioned a few times, you can subscribe to for bonus episodes and early episodes. Thank you very, very much to the people who have done that already. I appreciate your support. Um, there are donate buttons on the page. And also, under our new About page, um, which has been revamped, there's a full list of all the episodes that we've done. So you can find out the topics that have been covered before. If you're new to the show, you can go back through the archives and uh, see what might be of interest there. All of the interview episodes and transcripts of many of the uh, non-interview episodes have also been posted there in a nice index list for you to enjoy. But of course, these are all ways to engage with and support us. The best thing you can do is to tell other people who might be interested to listen. We rely on that word of mouth to spread word of the show, and I strongly appreciate people doing that as well so (laughs) um, just don't tell them it's investment advice because nothing in the proceeding can be construed as investment advice i'll probably have to say that for the next few as well i should stop covering finance stuff so that i don't have to keep saying that but uh, thank you to everyone who has done everything to support the show i really appreciate it and thank you for putting up with me trying to improvise most of the script for these thermonuclear takes episodes until next time then please do take care